Part three, chapter seven of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Averling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part three, chapter seven. She was stoical the next day when Maitre Hareng, the bailiff, with two assistants, presented himself at her house to draw up the inventory for the distraint. They began with Bovary's consulting room, and did not write down the phrenological head, which was considered an instrument of his profession. But in the kitchen they counted the plates, the saucepans, the chairs, the candlesticks, and in the bedroom all the knick-knacks on the whatnot. They examined her dresses, the linen, the dressing-room, and her whole existence to its most intimate details was, like a corpse on whom a post-mortem is made, outspread before the eyes of these three men. Maitre Hareng, buttoned up in his thin black coat, wearing a white choker and very tight footstraps, repeated from time to time, Allow me, madame, you allow me? Often he uttered exclamations, Charming, very pretty. Then he began writing again, dipping his pen into the horn inkstand in his left hand. When they had done with the rooms, they went up to the attic. She kept a desk there in which Rodolphe's letters were locked. It had to be opened. Ah, a correspondent, said Maitre Hareng with a discreet smile. But allow me, for I must make sure the box contains nothing else. And he tipped up the papers lightly as if to shake out Napoleon's. Then she grew angered to see this coarse hand, with fingers red and pulpy like slugs, touching these pages against which her heart had beaten. They went at last. Felicite came back. Emma sent her out to watch for Bovary in order to keep him off, and they hurriedly installed the man in possession under the roof where he swore he would remain. During the evening Charles seemed to her careworn. Emma watched him with a look of anguish, fancying she saw an accusation in every line of his face. Then, when her eyes wandered over the chimney-piece ornamented with Chinese screens, over the large curtains, the armchairs, all those things, in a word, that had softened the bitterness of her life, remorse seized her, or rather an immense regret that, far from crushing, irritated her passion. Charles placidly poked the fire, both his feet on the fire-dogs. Once the man, no doubt bored in his hiding-place, made a slight noise. "'Is anyone walking upstairs?' said Charles. "'No,' she replied. "'It is a window that has been left open and is rattling in the wind.' The next day, Sunday, she went to Rouen to call on all the brokers whose names she knew. They were at their country places or on journeys. She was not discouraged, and those whom she did manage to see she asked for money, declaring she must have some, and that she would pay it back. Some laughed in her face. All refused. At two o'clock she hurried to Léon and knocked at the door. No one answered. At length he appeared. What brings you here? Do I disturb you? No, but... And he admitted that his landlord didn't like his having women there. I must speak to you, she went on. Then he took down the key, but she stopped him. No, no, down there, in our home. And they went to their room at the Hotel de Boulogne. On arriving, she drank off a large glass of water. She was very pale. She said to him, Léon, will you do me a service? And shaking him by both hands that she grasped tightly, she added, Listen, 
I want eight thousand francs. But you are mad. Not yet. And thereupon, telling him the story of the distraint, she explained her distress to him, for Charles knew nothing of it. Her mother-in-law detested her. Old Rouault could do nothing. But he, Léon, he would set about finding this indispensable sum. How on earth can I? What a coward you are, she cried. Then he said stupidly, you are exaggerating the difficulty. Perhaps with a thousand crowns or so the fellow could be stopped. All the greater reason to try and do something. It was impossible that they could not find three thousand francs. Besides, Léon could be security instead of her. Go, try, try, I will love you so. He went out and came back at the end of an hour, saying with solemn face, I have been to three people with no success. Then they remained sitting face to face at the two chimney corners, motionless, in silence. Emma shrugged her shoulders as she stamped her feet. He heard her murmuring, If I were in your place, I should soon get some. But where? At your office. And she looked at him. An infernal boldness looked out from her burning eyes and their lids drew close together with a lascivious and encouraging look, so that the young man felt himself growing weak beneath the mute will of this woman who was urging him to a crime. Then he was afraid, and to avoid any explanation, he smote his forehead, crying, Morel is to come back tonight. He will not refuse me, I hope. This was one of his friends, the son of a very rich merchant. And I will bring it to you tomorrow, he added. Emma did not seem to welcome this hope with all the joy he had expected. Did she suspect the lie? He went on, blushing. However, if you don't see me by three o'clock, do not wait for me, my darling. I must be off now. Forgive me. Goodbye. He pressed her hand, but it felt quite lifeless. Emma had no strength left for any sentiment. Four o'clock struck, and she rose to return to Yonville, mechanically obeying the force of old habits. The weather was fine. It was one of those March days, clear and sharp, when the sun shines in a perfectly white sky. The Rouen folk in Sunday clothes were walking about with happy looks. She reached the Place du Pavis. People were coming out after Vespers. The crowd flowed out through the three doors like a stream through the three arches of a bridge, and in the middle one, more motionless than a rock, stood the beadle. Then she remembered the day when, all anxious and full of hope, she had entered beneath this large nave that had opened out before her, less profound than her love, and she walked on weeping beneath her veil, giddy, staggering, almost fainting. "'Take care!' cried a voice issuing from the gate of a courtyard that was thrown open. She stopped to let pass a black horse pawing the ground between the shafts of a tilbury, driven by a gentleman in sable furs. Who was it? She knew him. The carriage darted by and disappeared. Why, it was he, the Viscount. She turned away. The street was empty. She was so overwhelmed, so sad, that she had to lean against a wall to keep herself from falling. Then she thought she had been mistaken. Anyhow, she did not know. All within her and around her was abandoning her. She felt lost, sinking at random into indefinable abysses, and it was almost with joy that on reaching the Croix Rouge she saw the good Homme, who was watching a large box full of pharmaceutical stores being hoisted onto the Hirondelle. In his hand he held tied in a silk handkerchief three cheminots for his wife. 
Madame Homais was very fond of these small, heavy, turban-shaped loaves that are eaten in Lent with salt butter, a last vestige of Gothic food that goes back, perhaps, to the time of the Crusades, and with which the robust Normans gorged themselves of yore, fancying they saw on the table, in the light of the yellow torches, between tankards of Hippocrates and huge boar's heads, the heads of Saracens to be devoured. The druggist's wife crunched them up as they had done, heroically, despite her wretched teeth. And so whenever Homais journeyed to town, he never failed to bring her home some that he had brought at the great baker's in the Rue Massacre. Charmed to see you, he said, offering Emma a hand to help her into the hirondelle. Then he hung up his cheminots to the cords of the netting and remained bareheaded in an attitude pensive and Napoleonic. But when the blind man appeared, as usual, at the foot of the hill, he exclaimed, I can't understand why the authorities tolerate such culpable industries. Such unfortunate should be locked up and forced to work. Progress, my word, creeps at a snail's pace. We are floundering about in mere barbarism. The blind man held out his hat that flapped about at the door as if it were a bag in the lining that had come unnailed. This, said the chemist, is a scrofulous affection. And though he knew the poor devil, he pretended to see him for the first time, murmured something about cornea, opaque cornea, sclerotic, fasciers, then asked him in a paternal tone, My friend, have you long had this terrible infirmity? Instead of getting drunk at the public, you'd do better to die yourself. He advised him to take good wine, good beer, and good joints. The blind man went on with his song. He seemed, moreover, almost idiotic. At last, Monsieur Homais opened his purse. Now there's a sou. Give me back two lads. Don't forget my advice. You'd be the better for it. Hiver openly cast some doubt on the efficacy of it. But the druggist said he would cure himself with an antiphlogistic pomade of his own composition, and he gave his address. Monsieur Homais, near the market, pretty well known. Now, said Hiver, for all this trouble you give us your performance. The blind man sank down on his haunches, with his head thrown back, whilst he rolled his greenish eyes, lolled out his tongue, and rubbed his stomach with both hands, as he uttered a kind of hollow yell like a famished dog. Emma, filled with disgust, threw him over her shoulder a five-franc piece. It was all her fortune. It seemed to her very fine thus to throw it away. The coach had gone on again when suddenly Monsieur Homais leant out through the window, crying, No farinaceous or milk food! Wear wool next the skin and expose the diseased parts to the smoke of juniper berries! The sight of the well-known objects that defiled before her eyes gradually diverted Emma from her present trouble. An intolerable fatigue overwhelmed her, and she reached her home stupefied, discouraged, almost asleep. Come what may come, she said to herself, and then who knows? Why, at any moment, could not some extraordinary event occur? Lheureux might even die. At nine o'clock in the morning she was awakened by the sound of voices in the place. There was a crowd round the market reading a large bill fixed to one of the posts, and she saw Justin, who was climbing onto a stone and tearing down the bill. But at this moment the rural guard seized him by the collar. Monsieur Hamet came out of his shop, and Mère Lefrangois, in the midst of the crowd, seemed to be perorating. 
Madame, Madame, cried Felicite, running in, it's abominable. And the poor girl, deeply moved, handed her a yellow paper that she had just torn off the door. Emma read with a glance that all her furniture was for sale. Then they looked at one another silently. The servant and mistress had no secret one from the other. At last Felicite sighed. If I were you, madame, I should go to Monsieur Guillemin. Do you think? And this question meant to say, you who know the house through the servant, has the master spoken sometimes of me? Yes, you do well to go there. She dressed, put on her black gown and her hood with jet beads, and that she might not be seen, there was still a crowd on the place, she took the path by the river outside the village. She reached the notary's gate quite breathless. The sky was sombre and a little snow was falling. At the sound of the bell, Theodore, in a red waistcoat, appeared on the steps. He came to open the door almost familiarly, as to an acquaintance, and showed her into the dining-room. A large porcelain stove crackled beneath a cactus that filled up the niche in the wall, and in black wood frames against the oak-stained paper hung Steuben's Esmeralda and Chopin's Potiphar. The ready-laid table, the two silver chafing dishes, the crystal doorknobs, the parquet and the furniture, all shone with a scrupulous English cleanliness. The windows were ornamented at each corner with stained glass. Now this, thought Emma, is the dining-room I ought to have. The notary came in, pressing his palm-leaf dressing-gown to his breast with his left arm, while with the other hand he raised and quickly put on again his brown velvet cap, pretentiously cocked on the right side, whence looked out the ends of three fair curls drawn from the back of the head following the line of his bald skull. After he had offered her a seat, he sat down to breakfast, apologising profusely for his rudeness. "'I have come,' she said, "'to beg you, sir. "'What, madame?' I am listening. And she began explaining her position to him. Monsieur Guillemin knew it, being secretly associated with the linen draper, from whom he always got capital for the loans on mortgages that he was asked to make. So he knew, and better than herself, the long story of the bills, small at first, bearing different names as endorsers, made out at long dates and constantly renewed up to the day when, gathering together all the protested bills, the shopkeeper had bidden his friend Vancar take in his own name all the necessary proceedings, not wishing to pass for a tiger with his fellow citizens. She mingled her story with recriminations against Leroux, to which the notary replied from time to time with some insignificant word. Eating his cutlet and drinking his tea, he buried his chin in his sky-blue cravat, into which were thrust two diamond pins held together by a small gold chain, and he smiled a singular smile in a sugary, ambiguous fashion. But noticing that her feet were damp, he said, Do get closer to the stove. Put your feet up against the porcelain. She was afraid of dirtying it. The notary replied in a gallant tone, Beautiful things spoil nothing. Then she cried to move him, and growing moved herself, she began telling him about the poorness of her home, her worries, her wants. He could understand that, an elegant woman, and without leaving off eating, he had turned completely round towards her, so that his knee brushed against her boot, whose sole curled round it as it smoked against the stove. 
but when she asked for a thousand sous, he closed his lips, and declared he was very sorry he had not had the management of her fortune before, for there were hundreds of ways very convenient, even for a lady, of turning her money to account. They might, either in the turf beats of Grumenil, or building ground at Havre, almost without risk, have ventured on some excellent speculations, and he let her consume herself with rage at the thought of the fabulous sums that she would certainly have made. How was it, he went on, that you didn't come to me? I hardly know, she said. Why, hey, did I frighten you so much? It is I, on the contrary, who ought to complain. We hardly know one another, yet I am very devoted to you. You do not doubt that, I hope. He held out his hand, took hers, covered it with a greedy kiss, then held it on his knee and he played delicately with her fingers whilst he murmured a thousand blandishments. His insipid voice murmured like a running brook, a light shone in his eyes through the glimmering of his spectacles, and his hand was advancing up Emma's sleeve to press her arm. She felt against her cheek his panting breath. This man oppressed her horribly. She sprang up and said to him, Sir, I am waiting. For what? said the notary, who suddenly became very pale. This money. But, then yielding to the outburst of too powerful a desire, well, yes. He dragged himself towards her on his knees, regardless of his dressing gown. For pity's sake, stay. I love you. He seized her by her waist. Madame Bovary's face flushed purple. She recoiled with a terrible look, crying, You are taking a shameless advantage of my distress, sir. I am to be pitied, not to be sold. And she went out. The notary remained quite stupefied, his eyes fixed on his fine embroidered slippers. They were a love gift, and the sight of them at last consoled him. Besides, he reflected that such an adventure might have carried him too far. What a wretch! What a scoundrel! What an infamy! she said to herself as she fled with nervous steps beneath the aspens of the path. The disappointment of her failure increased the indignation of her outraged modesty. It seemed to her that Providence pursued her implacably, and strengthening herself in her pride, she had never felt so much esteem for herself, nor so much contempt for others. A spirit of warfare transformed her. She would have liked to strike all men, to spit in their faces, to crush them, and she walked rapidly straight on, pale, quivering, maddened, searching the empty horizon with tear-dimmed eyes, and as it were rejoicing in the hate that was choking her. When she saw her house, a numbness came over her. She could not go on, and yet she must. Besides, whither could she flee? Felicite was waiting for her at the door. Well? No, said Emma. And for a quarter of an hour the two of them went over the various persons in Yonville who might perhaps be inclined to help her. But each time that Felicite named someone, Emma replied, Impossible, they were not. And the master will soon be in. I know that well enough. Leave me alone. She had tried everything. There was nothing more to be done now. And when Charles came in, she would have to say to him, Go away. This carpet on which you are walking is no longer ours. In your own house you do not possess a chair, a pin, a straw. And it is I, poor man, who have ruined you. 
then there would be a great sob, next he would weep abundantly, and at last the surprise passed. He would forgive her. Yes, she murmured, grinding her teeth, he will forgive me. He who would give a million if I would forgive him for having known me. Never, never. This thought of Bovary's superiority to her exasperated her. Then, whether she confessed or did not confess, presently, immediately, tomorrow, he would know the catastrophe all the same, so she must wait for this horrible scene and bear the weight of his magnanimity. The desire to return to Lerue's seized her. What would be the use? To write to her father. It was too late. And perhaps she began to repent now that she had not yielded to that other when she heard the trot of a horse in the alley. It was he. He was opening the gate. He was whiter than the plaster wall. Rushing to the stairs, she ran out quickly to the square, and the wife of the mayor who was talking to Lestie Boudreau in front of the church saw her go in to the tax collectors. She hurried off to tell Madame Caron, and the two ladies went up to the attic, and, hidden by some linen spread across props, stationed themselves comfortably for overlooking the whole of Binet's room. He was alone in his garret, busy imitating in wood one of those indescribable bits of ivory, composed of crescents, of spheres hollowed out one within the other, the whole as straight as an obelisk and of no use whatever, and he was beginning on the last piece. He was nearing his goal. In the twilight of the workshop the white dust was flying from his tools like a shower of sparks under the hooves of a galloping horse. The two wheels were turning, droning. Binet smiled, his chin lowered, his nostrils distended, and in a word seemed lost in one of those complete happinesses that no doubt belong only to commonplace occupations, which amuse the mind with facile difficulties and satisfy by a realisation of that beyond which such minds have not a dream. Ah, there she is, exclaimed Madame Tuvage. But it was impossible because of the lays to hear what she was saying. At last these ladies thought they made out the word Franks, and Madame Tuvage whispered in a low voice, She is begging him to give her time for paying her taxes. Apparently, replied the other. They saw her walking up and down, examining the napkin rings, the candlesticks, the banister rails against the walls, while Binet stroked his beard with satisfaction. Do you think she wants to order something of him? said Madame Tuvage. Why, he doesn't sell anything, objected her neighbour. The tax collector seemed to be listening with wide open eyes, as if he did not understand. She went on in a tender, suppliant manner. She came nearer to him, her breast heaving. They no longer spoke. Is she making him advances, said Madame Tuvache. Binet was scarlet to his very ears. She took hold of his hands. Oh, it's too much! And no doubt she was suggesting something abominable to him for the tax collector. Yet he was brave. He fought at Bozen and at Lutzen, had been through the French campaign, and had even been recommended for the cross. Suddenly, as at the sight of a serpent, recoiled as far as he could from her, crying, Madame, what do you mean? Women like that ought to be whipped, said Madame Tuvache. But where is she? continued Madame Caron, for she had disappeared while they spoke. Then, catching sight of her going up the Grande Rue and turning to the right as if making for the cemetery, they were lost in conjectures. 
Nurse Raleigh, she said on reaching the nurses, I am choking, unlace me. She fell on the bed, sobbing. Nurse Raleigh covered her with a petticoat and remained standing by her side. Then, as she did not answer, the good woman withdrew, took her wheel and began spinning flax. Oh, leave off, she murmured, fancying she heard Binet's lathe. What's bothering her, said the nurse to herself. Why has she come here? She had rushed thither, impelled by a kind of horror that drove her from her home. Lying on her back, motionless and with staring eyes, she saw things but vaguely, although she tried to with idiotic persistence. She looked at the scales on the walls, two brands smoking end to end, and a long spider crawling over her head in a rent in the beam. At last she began to collect her thoughts. She remembered. One day. Léon. Oh, how long ago that was. The sun was shining on the river and the clematis were perfuming the air. Then carried away as by a rushing torrent she soon began to recall the day before. What time is it? she asked. Merole went out, raised the fingers of her right hand to that side of the sky that was brightest, and came back slowly, saying, Nearly three. Ah, thanks, thanks. For he would come. He would have found some money. But he would perhaps go down yonder, not guessing she was here, and she told the nurse to run to her house to fetch him. Be quick. But, my dear lady, I'm going, I'm going. She wondered now that she had not thought of him from the first. Yesterday he had given his word. He would not break it. And she already saw herself at Lerreur spreading out her three banknotes on his bureau. Then she would have to invent some story to explain matters to Bovary. What should it be? The nurse, however, was a long while gone. But as there was no clock in the cot, Emma feared she was perhaps exaggerating the length of time. She began walking round the garden, step by step. She went into the path by the hedge and returned quickly, hoping that the woman would have come back by another road. At last, weary of waiting, assailed by fears that she thrust from her, no longer conscious whether she had been here a century or a moment, she sat down in a corner, closed her eyes and stopped her ears. The gate grated. She sprang up. Before she had spoken, Mère Allée said to her, There is no one at your house. What? Oh, no one. And the doctor is crying. He is calling for you. They are looking for you. Emma answered nothing. She gasped as she turned her eyes about her, while the peasant woman, frightened at her face, drew back, instinctively thinking her mad. Suddenly she struck her brow and uttered a cry, for the thought of Rodolphe, like a flash of lightning in a dark night, had passed into her soul. He was so good, so delicate, so generous. And besides, should he hesitate to do her this service, she would know well enough how to constrain him to it by reawakening in a single moment their lost love. So she set out towards La Huchette, not seeing that she was hastening to offer herself to that which, but a while ago, had so angered her, not in the least conscious of her prostitution. End of Part 3 Chapter 7Part 3, Chapter 8 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 3, 
Chapter 8 She asked herself as she walked along, What am I going to say? How shall I begin? And as she went on, she recognised the thickets, the trees, the sea rushes on the hill, the chateau yonder. All the sensations of her first tenderness came back to her, and her poor, aching heart opened out amorously. A warm wind blew in her face. The melting snow fell drop by drop from the buds to the grass. She entered as she used to through the small park gate. She reached the avenue bordered by a double row of dense lime trees. They were swaying their long, whispering branches to and fro. The dogs in their kennels all barked, and the noise of their voices resounded, but brought out no one. She went up the large straight staircase with wooden balusters that led to the corridor paved with dusty flags, into which several doors in a row opened, as in a monastery or an inn. He was at the top, right at the end, on the left. When she placed her fingers on the lock, her strength suddenly deserted her. She was afraid almost wished he would not be there, though this was her only hope, her last chance of salvation. She collected her thoughts for one moment, and strengthening herself by the feeling of present necessity, went in. He was in front of the fire, both his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a pipe. "'What, is it you?' he said, getting up hurriedly. "'Yes, it is I, Rodolphe. I should like to ask your advice.' and despite all her efforts, it was impossible for her to open her lips. "'You have not changed. You are charming as ever.' "'Oh,' she replied bitterly, "'they are poor charms since you disdained them.' Then he began a long explanation of his conduct, excusing himself in vague terms, in default of being able to invent better. She yielded to his words, still more to his voice and the sight of him, so that she pretended to believe, or perhaps believed, in the pretext he gave for their rupture. This was a secret on which depended the honour, the very life of a third person. No matter, she said, looking at him sadly. I have suffered much. He replied philosophically, such is life. Has life, Emma went on, been good to you, at least, since our separation? Oh, neither good nor bad. Perhaps it would have been better never to have parted. Yes, perhaps. You think so, she said, drawing nearer, and she sighed. Oh, Rodolphe, if you but knew, I loved you so. It was then that she took his hand, and they remained some time, their fingers intertwined, like that first day at the show. With a gesture of pride, he struggled against this emotion, but sinking upon his breast, she said to him, How did you think I could live without you? One cannot lose the habit of happiness. I was desolate. I thought I should die. I will tell you all about that, and you will see. And you, you fled from me. For all the three years he had carefully avoided her in consequence of that natural cowardice that characterises the stronger sex. Emma went on with dainty little nods, more coaxing than an amorous kitten. You love others. Confess it. Oh, I understand them, dear. I excuse them. You probably seduced them as you seduced me. You are indeed a man. You have everything to make one love you. But we'll begin again, won't we? We will love one another. See, I'm laughing. I'm happy. 
Oh, speak. And she was charming to see, with her eyes in which trembled a tear, like the rain of a storm in a blue corolla. He had drawn her upon his knees, and with the back of his hand was caressing her smooth hair, where in the twilight was mirrored like a golden arrow one last ray of the sun. She bent down her brow. At last he kissed her on the eyelids quite gently with the tips of his lips. Why, you've been crying. What for? She burst into tears. Rodolphe thought this was an outburst of her love. As she did not speak, he took this silence for a last remnant of resistance, and then he cried out, Oh, forgive me, you're the only one who pleases me. I was imbecile and cruel. I love you. I will love you always. What is it? Tell me. He was kneeling by her. Well, I am ruined, Rodolphe. You must lend me three thousand francs. But, but, said he, getting up slowly, while his face assumed a grave expression. You know, she went on quickly, that my husband had placed his whole fortune at a notary's. He ran away. So we borrowed. The patients don't pay us. Moreover, the settling of the estate is not yet done. We shall have the money later on. But today, for want of three thousand francs, we are to be sold up. It is to be at once, this very moment, and counting upon your friendship, I have come to you. Ah, thought Rodolphe, turning very pale. That was what she came for. At last, he said with a calm air, Dear madam, I have not got them. He did not lie. If he had had them, he would, no doubt, have given them, although it is generally disagreeable to do such fine things, a demand for money being, of all the winds that blow upon love, the coldest and most destructive. First she looked at him for some moments. You have not got them, she repeated several times. You have not got them. I ought to have spared myself this last shame. You never loved me. You are no better than the others. She was betraying, ruining herself. Rodolphe interrupted her, declaring he was hard up himself. Ah, oh, I pity you, said Emma. Yes, very much and fixing her eyes upon an embossed carabine that shot against its panoply. But when one is so poor, one doesn't have silver on the butt of one's gun. One doesn't buy a clock inlaid with tortoise shell, she went on, pointing to a buhl timepiece, nor silver gilt whistles for one's whips, and she touched them, nor charms for one's watch. Oh, he wants for nothing, even to a liqueur stand in his room, for you love yourself, you live well, you have a chateau, farms, woods. You go hunting, you travel to Paris. Why, if it were but that, she cried, taking up two studs from the mantelpiece, but the least of these trifles one can get money for them. Oh, I do not want them. Keep them. And she threw the two links away from her, their gold chain breaking as it struck against the wall. But I, I would have given you everything. I would have sold all, worked for you with my hands. I would have begged on the high roads for a smile for a look to hear you say thanks. And you sit there quietly in your armchair as if you had not made me suffer enough already. But for you, and you know it, I might have lived happily. What made you do it? Was it a bet? 
yet you loved me. You said so. And but a moment since, ah, it would have been better to have driven me away. My hands are hot with your kisses, and there is the spot on the carpet where at my knees you swore an eternity of love. You made me believe you. For two years you held me in the most magnificent, the sweetest dream. Eh? Our plans for the journey, do you remember? Oh, your letter, your letter, it tore my heart. And then when I come back to him, to him, rich, happy, free, to implore the help the first stranger would give, a suppliant, and bringing back to him all my tenderness, he repulses me, because it would cost him three thousand francs. I haven't got them, replied Rodolphe, with that perfect calm with which resigned rage covers itself as with a shield. She went out. The walls trembled, the ceiling was crushing her, and she passed back through the long alley, stumbling against the heaps of dead leaves scattered by the wind. At last she reached the ha-ha hedge in front of the gate. She broke her nails against the lock in her haste to open it. Then a hundred steps farther on, breathless, almost falling, she stopped. And now, turning round, she once more saw the impassive chateau with the park, the gardens, the three courts and all the windows of the façade. She remained lost in stupor, and having no more consciousness of herself than through the beating of her arteries that she seemed to hear bursting forth like a deafening music filling all the fields. The earth beneath her feet was more yielding than the sea, and the furrow seemed to her immense brown waves breaking into foam. Everything in her head of memories, ideas, went off at once like a thousand pieces of fireworks. She saw her father, the rose closet, their room at home, another landscape. Madness was coming upon her. She grew afraid and managed to recover herself in a confused way, it is true, for she did not in the least remember the cause of the terrible condition she was in, that is to say, the question of money. She suffered only in her love and felt her soul passing from her in this memory as wounded men dying feel their life ebb from their bleeding wounds. Night was falling, crows were flying about. Suddenly it seemed to her that fiery spheres were exploding in the air like fulminating balls when they strike and were whirling, whirling to melt at last upon the snow between the branches of the trees. In the midst of each of them appeared the face of Rodolphe. They multiplied and drew near her, penetrating her. It all disappeared. She recognised the lights of the houses that shone through the fog. Now her situation, like an abyss, rose up before her. She was panting as if her heart would burst. Then, in an ecstasy of heroism that made her almost joyous, she ran down the hill, crossed the cow plank, the footpath, the alley, the market, and reached the chemist's shop. She was about to enter, but at the sound of the bell someone might come, and slipping in by the gate, holding her breath, feeling her way along the walls, she went as far as the door of the kitchen, where a candle stuck on the stove was burning. Justin, in his shirt-sleeves, was carrying out a dish. Ah, they're dining. I will wait. He returned. She tapped at the window. He went out. The key, the one for upstairs, where he keeps the... What? and he looked at her, astonished at the pallor of her face that stood out white against the black background of the night. 
She seemed to him extraordinarily beautiful and majestic as a phantom. Without understanding what she wanted, he had the presentiment of something terrible. But she went on quickly in a love voice, in a sweet, melting voice. I want it. Give it to me. As the partition wall was thin, they could hear the clatter of the forks on the plates in the dining room. She pretended that she wanted to kill the rats that kept her from sleeping. I must tell the master. No, stay. Then, with an indifferent air, Oh, it's not worth while. I'll tell him presently. Come, light me upstairs. She entered the corridor into which the laboratory door opened. Against the wall was a key labelled Cafarnaum. Justin, called the druggist impatiently. Let us go up. And he followed her. The key turned in the lock, and she went straight to the third shelf. So well did her memory guide her. Seized the blue jar, tore out the cork, plunged in her hand, and withdrawing it full of a white powder, she began eating it. Stop, he cried, rushing at her. Hush, someone will come. He was in despair, was calling out, Say nothing, or all the blame will fall on your master. Then she went home, suddenly calmed, and with something of the serenity of one that had performed a duty. When Charles, distracted by the news of the distraint, returned home, Emma had just gone out. He cried aloud, wept, fainted, but she did not return. Where could she be? He sent Felicite to Homais, to Monsieur Tuvache, to Lheureux, to the Lion d'Or, everywhere, and in the intervals of his agony he saw his reputation destroyed, their fortune lost, Berta's future ruined. By what? Not a word. He waited till six in the evening. At last, unable to bear it any longer, and fancying she had gone to Rouen, he set out along the high road, walked a mile, met no one, again waited and returned home. She had come back. What was the matter? Why? Explain to me. She sat down at her writing-table and wrote a letter, which she sealed slowly, adding the date and the hour. Then she said in a solemn tone, You are to read it tomorrow. Till then, I pray you, do not ask me a single question. No, not one. But, oh, leave me. She lay down full length on her bed. A bitter taste that she felt in her mouth awakened her. She saw Charles, and again closed her eyes. She was studying herself curiously to see if she were not suffering. But no, nothing as yet. She heard the ticking of the clock, the crackling of the fire, and Charles breathing as he stood upright by her bed. Ah, it is but a little thing, death, she thought. I shall fall asleep, and all will be over. She drank a mouthful of water and turned to the wall. The frightful taste of ink continued. I am thirsty, oh, so thirsty, she sighed. What is it, said Charles, who was handing her a glass. It is nothing. Open the window. I am choking. She was seized with a sickness so sudden that she had hardly time to draw out her handkerchief from under the pillow. Take it away, she said quickly. Throw it away. He spoke to her. She did not answer. She lay motionless, afraid that the slightest movement might make her vomit. But she felt an icy cold creeping from her feet to her heart. Ah, it is beginning, she murmured. What did you say? 
She turned her head from side to side with a gentle movement full of agony, while constantly opening her mouth as if something very heavy were weighing upon her tongue. At eight o'clock the vomiting began again. Charles noticed that at the bottom of the basin there was a sort of white sediment sticking to the sides of the porcelain. This is extraordinary, very singular, he repeated. But she said in a firm voice, No, you are mistaken. Then gently and almost as caressing her, he passed his hand over her stomach. She uttered a sharp cry. He fell back, terror-stricken. Then she began to groan, faintly at first. Her shoulders were shaken by a strong shuddering, and she was growing paler than the sheets in which her clenched fingers buried themselves. Her unequal pulse was now almost imperceptible. Drops of sweat oozed from her bluish face that seemed as if rigid in the exhalations of a metallic vapour. Her teeth chattered, her dilated eyes looked vaguely about her, and to all questions she replied only with a shake of the head. She even smiled once or twice. Gradually her moaning grew louder. A hollow shriek burst from her. She pretended she was better and said she would get up presently. But she was seized with convulsions and cried out, Oh my God, it is horrible! He threw himself on his knees by her bed. Tell me, what have you eaten? Answer, for heaven's sake! And he looked at her with a tenderness in his eyes such as she had never seen. Well, there, there she said in a faint voice. He flew to the writing-table, tore open the seal, and read aloud, Accuse no one. He stopped, passed his hand across his eyes, and read it over again. What? Help! Help! He could only keep repeating the word, Poisoned! Poisoned! Felicite ran to Homais, who proclaimed it in the marketplace. Madame Lefrancois heard it at the lion door. Some got up to go and tell their neighbours, and all night the village was on the alert. Distraught, faltering, reeling, Charles wandered about the room. He knocked against the furniture, tore his hair, and the chemist never believed that there could be so terrible a sight. He went home to write to Monsieur Carnivet and to Dr. La Riviere. He lost his head and made more than fifteen rough copies. Hippolyte went to Neufchatel, and Justin so spurred Bovary's horse that he left it founded and three parts dead by the hill at Bois-Guillaume. Charles tried to look up his medical dictionary, but could not read it. The lines were dancing. "'Be calm,' said the druggers. "'We have only to administer a powerful antidote. What is the poison?' Charles showed him the letter. It was arsenic. Very well, said Homais, we must make an analysis. For he knew that in cases of poisoning an analysis must be made, and the other, who did not understand, answered, Oh, do anything, save her. Then going back to her, he sank upon the carpet and lay there with his head leaning against the edge of her bed, sobbing. Don't cry, she said to him, soon I shall not trouble you any more. Why was it? Who drove you to it? She replied, It had to be, my dear. Weren't you happy? Is it my fault? I did all I could. Yes, that is true. You are good, you. And she passed her hand slowly over his hair. The sweetness of this sensation deepened his sadness. He felt his whole being dissolving in despair at the thought that he must lose her, just when she was confessing more love for him than ever. And he could think of nothing. He did not know. He did not dare. 
The urgent need for some immediate resolution gave the finishing stroke to the turmoil of his mind. So she had done, she thought, with all the treachery and meanness and numberless desires that had tortured her. She hated no one now. A twilight dimness was settling upon her thoughts, and of all earthly noises Emma heard none but the intermittent lamentations of this poor heart, sweet and indistinct like the echo of a symphony dying away. Bring me the child, she said, raising herself on her elbow. You're not worse, are you? asked Charles. No, no. The child, serious and still half asleep, was carried in on the servant's arm in her long white nightgown from which her bare feet peeped out. She looked wonderingly at the disordered room and half-closed her eyes, dazzled by the candles burning on the table. They reminded her, no doubt, of the morning of New Year's Day and mid-Lent, when thus awakened early by candlelight she came to her mother's bed to fetch her presents, for she began saying, "'But where is it, Mamma? and as everybody was silent, but I can't see my little stocking. Felicite held her over the bed while she still kept looking towards the mantelpiece. Has nurse taken it? she asked. And at this name that carried her back to the memory of her adulteries and her calamities, Madame Bovary turned away her head as at the loathing of another bitterer poison that rose to her mouth. But Berta remained perched on the bed. Oh, how big your eyes are, Mamma! How pale you are! How hot you are! Her mother looked at her. I am frightened, cried the child, recoiling. Emma took her hand to kiss it. The child struggled. That will do. Take her away, cried Charles, who was sobbing in the alcove. Then the symptoms ceased for a moment. She seemed less agitated, and at every insignificant word, at every respiration a little more easy, he regained hope. At last, when Canavet came in, he threw himself into his arms. Ah, oh, tis you, thanks, you are good, but she is better. See, look at her. His colleague was by no means of this opinion, and, as he said to himself, never beating about the bush, he prescribed an emetic in order to empty the stomach completely. She soon began vomiting blood. Her lips became drawn. Her limbs were convulsed, her whole body covered with brown spots, and her pulse slipped beneath the fingers like a stretched thread, like a harp-string nearly breaking. After this, she began to scream horribly. She cursed the poison, railed at it, and implored it to be quick, and thrust away with her stiffened arms everything that Charles, in more agony than herself, tried to make her drink. He stood up, his handkerchief to his lips, with a rattling sound in his throat, weeping and choked by sobs that shook his whole body. Felicite was running hither and thither in the room. Homais, motionless, uttered great sighs, and Monsieur Carnivet, always retaining his self-command, nevertheless began to feel uneasy. The devil! She has been purged, and from the moment that the cause ceases... The effect must cease, said Homais. That is evident. Oh, save her, cried Bovary. And, without listening to the chemist, who was still venturing the hypothesis, it is perhaps a salutary paroxysm, Canivet was about to administer some theriac when they heard the cracking of a whip. All the windows rattled, and a post-chaise, drawn by three horses abreast, up to their ears in mud, drove at a gallop round the corner of the market. 
It was Dr. La Riviere. The apparition of a god would not have caused more commotion. Bovary raised his hands. Carnavet stopped short, and Homais pulled off his skull cap long before the doctor had come in. He belonged to that great school of surgery begotten of Bichat, to that generation now extinct of philosophical practitioners who, loving their art with a fanatical love, exercised it with enthusiasm and wisdom. Everyone in his hospital trembled when he was angry, and his students so revered him that they tried, as soon as they were themselves in practice, to imitate him as much as possible, so that in all the towns about they were found wearing his long-wadded merino overcoat and black frock-coat, whose buttoned cuffs slightly covered his brawny hands, very beautiful hands, and that never knew gloves, as though to be more ready to plunge into suffering disdainful of honours, of titles and of academies, like one of the old knight hospitaliers, generous, fatherly to the poor and practising virtue without believing in it, he would almost have passed for a saint if the keenness of his intellect had not caused him to be feared as a demon. His glance, more penetrating than his bisteries, looked straight into your soul and dissected every lie athwart all assertions and all reticences. And thus he went along, full of that debonair majesty that is given by the consciousness of great talent, of fortune, and of forty years of a laborious and irreproachable life. He frowned as soon as he had passed the door, when he saw the cadaverous face of Emma stretched out on her back with her mouth open. Then, while apparently listening to Carnivet, he rubbed his fingers up and down beneath his nostrils and repeated, Good, good but he made a slow gesture with his shoulders. Bovary watched him. They looked at one another. And this man, accustomed as he was to the sight of pain, could not keep back a tear that fell on his shirt frill. He tried to take Carnivet into the next room. Charles followed him. She's very ill, isn't she? If we put on synapisms, anything, I'll think of something. You who have saved so many... Charles caught him in both his arms and gazed at him wildly, imploringly, half fainting against his breast. Come, my poor fellow, courage. There is nothing more to be done. And Dr. La Riviere turned away. You are going? I will come back. He went out only to give an order to the coachman with Monsieur Carnivet, who did not care either to have Emma die under his hands. The chemist rejoined them on the place. He could not by temperament keep away from celebrities, so he begged Monsieur La Riviere to do him the signal honour of accepting some breakfast. He sent quickly to the lion door for some pigeons, to the butchers for all the cutlets that were to be had, to Duvache for cream, and to Lesti Boudard for eggs, and the druggist himself aided in the preparations, while Madame Homais was saying as she pulled together the strings of her jacket, You must excuse us, sir, for in this poor place, when one hasn't been told the night before. Wine glasses, whispered Homais. If only we were in town, we could fall back upon stuffed trotters. Be quiet. Sit down, doctor. He thought fit, after the first few mouthfuls, to give some details as to the catastrophe. We first had a feeling of cecicity in the pharynx, then intolerable pains at the epigastrium, superpurgation, coma. But how did she poison herself? I don't know, doctor, and I don't even know where she can have procured the arsenious acid. 
Justin, who was just bringing in a pile of plates, began to tremble. What's the matter, said the chemist. At this question, the young man dropped the whole lot on the ground with a crash. Imbecile, cried Homme, awkward, lout, blockhead, confounded ass. But suddenly, controlling himself, I wished, doctor, to make an analysis, and primo, I delicately introduced a tube. You would have done better, said the physician, to introduce your fingers into her throat. His colleague was silent, having just before privately received a severe lecture about his emetic, so that this good Carnivet, so arrogant and so verbose at the time of the clubfoot, was today very modest. He smiled without ceasing in an approving manner. Homais, dilated in amphitryonic pride, and the affecting thought of Bovary vaguely contributed to his pleasure by a kind of egotistic reflex upon himself. Then the presence of the doctor transported him. He displayed his erudition, cited pell-mell, cantharides, upas, the manchineel, vipers. I have even read that various persons have found themselves under toxological symptoms and, as it were, thunder-stricken by black pudding that had been subjected to a too vehement fumigation. At least this was stated in a very fine report, drawn up by one of our pharmaceutical chiefs, one of our masters, the illustrious Cadet de Gassicourt. Madame Homais reappeared, carrying one of those shaky machines that are heated with spirits of wine, for Homais liked to make his coffee at table, having, moreover, torrified it, pulverised it, and mixed it himself. Saccharum, doctor, he said, offering the sugar. Then he had all his children brought down, anxious to have the physician's opinion on their constitutions. At last, Monsieur La Riviere was about to leave when Madame Homais asked for a consultation about her husband. He was making his blood too thick by going to sleep every evening after dinner. Oh, it isn't his blood that's too thick, said the physician. And smiling a little at his unnoticed joke, the doctor opened the door. But the chemist's shop was full of people. He had the greatest difficulty in getting rid of Monsieur Tuvache, who feared his spouse would get inflammation of the lungs because she was in the habit of spitting on the ashes, then of Monsieur Binet, who sometimes experienced sudden attacks of great hunger, and of Madame Caron, who suffered from tinglings, of Lerreur, who had vertigo, of Lestiboudois, who had rheumatism, and of Madame Le Francois, who had heartburn. At last the three horses started, and it was the general opinion that he had not shown himself at all obliging. Public attention was distracted by the appearance of Monsieur Bonissien, who was going across the market with the holy oil. Homais, as was due to his principles, compared priests to ravens attracted by the odour of death. The sight of an ecclesiastic was personally disagreeable to him, for the cassock made him think of the shroud, and he detested the one from some fear of the other. Nevertheless, not shrinking from what he called his mission, he returned to Bovary's in company with Carnivet, whom Monsieur La Riviere, before leaving, had strongly urged to make this visit, and he would, but for his wife's objections, have taken his two sons with him, in order to accustom them to great occasions, that this might be a lesson, for example, a solemn picture, that should remain in their heads later on. The room, when they went in, was full of mournful solemnity. On the work-table, covered over with a white cloth, there were five or six small balls of cotton in a silver dish, near a large crucifix between two lighted candles. Emma, her chin sunken upon her breast, had her eyes inordinately wide open, 
and her poor hands wandered over the sheets with that hideous and soft movement of the dying that seems as if they wanted already to cover themselves with the shroud. Pale as a statue and with eyes red as fire, Charles, not weeping, stood opposite her at the foot of the bed, while the priest, bending one knee, was muttering words in a low voice. She turned her face slowly, and seemed filled with joy on seeing suddenly the violet stole, no doubt finding again, in the midst of a temporary lull in her pain, the lost voluptuousness of her first mystical transports, with the visions of eternal beatitude that were beginning. The priest rose to take the crucifix. Then she stretched forward her neck as one who is athirst, and gluing her lips to the body of the man-god, she pressed upon it with all her expiring strength the fullest kiss of love that she had ever given. Then he recited the miseriata and the indulgentem, dipped his right thumb in the oil, and began to give extreme unction. First upon the eyes that had so coveted all worldly pomp, then upon the nostrils that had been greedy of the warm breeze and amorous odours, then upon the mouth that had uttered lies, that had curled with pride and cried out in lewdness, then upon the hands that had delighted in sensual touches, and finally upon the soles of the feet, so swift of yore when she was running to satisfy her desires, and that would now walk no more. The curé wiped his fingers threw the bit of cotton dipped in oil into the fire, and came and sat down by the dying woman, to tell her that she must now blend her sufferings with those of Jesus Christ, and abandon herself to the divine mercy. Finishing his exhortations, he tried to place in her hand a blessed candle, symbol of the celestial glory with which she was soon to be surrounded. Emma, too weak, could not close her fingers, and the taper but for Monsieur Brunissien would have fallen to the ground. However, she was not quite so pale, and her face had an expression of serenity as if the sacrament had cured her. The priest did not fail to point this out. He even explained to Bovary that the Lord sometimes prolonged the life of persons when he thought it meet for their salvation, and Charles remembered the day when, so near death, she had received the communion. Perhaps there was no need to despair, he thought. In fact, she looked around her slowly, as one awakening from a dream. Then, in a distinct voice, she asked for her looking-glass, and remained some time bending over it, until the big tears fell from her eyes. Then she turned away her head with a sigh, and fell back upon the pillows. Her chest soon began panting rapidly. The whole of her tongue protruded from her mouth. Her eyes, as they rolled, grew paler, like the two globes of a lamp that is going out, so that one might have thought her already dead, but for the fearful labouring of her ribs, shaken by violent breathing, as if the soul was struggling to free itself. Felicite knelt down before the crucifix, and the druggist himself slightly bent his knees, while Monsieur Carnavet looked out vaguely at the place. Bonissienne had again begun to pray. His face bowed against the edge of the bed, his long black cassock trailing behind him in the room. Charles was on the other side, on his knees, his arms outstretched towards Emma. He had taken her hands and pressed them, shuddering at every beat of her heart, as at the shaking of a falling ruin. 
as the death rattle became stronger. The priest prayed faster. His prayers mingled with the stifled sobs of Bovary, and sometimes all seemed lost in the muffled murmur of the Latin syllables that tolled like a passing bell. Suddenly on the pavement was heard a loud noise of clogs and the clattering of a stick, and a voice rose, a raucous voice, that sang, Maids in the warmth of a summer day, dream of love and of love always. Emma raised herself like a galvanised corpse, her hair undone, her eyes fixed, staring. When the sickle blades have been Nanette gathering years of corn, Fasses bending down, my queen, to the earth where they were born. The blind man, she cried, and Emma began to laugh, an atrocious, frantic, despairing laugh, thinking she saw the hideous face of the poor wretch that stood out against the eternal night like a menace. The wind is strong this summer day, her petticoat has flown away. She fell back upon the mattress in a convulsion. They all drew near. She was dead. End of part three, chapter eight. Part three, chapter nine of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part three, chapter nine. There is always, after the death of any one, a kind of stupefaction. So difficult is it to grasp this advent of nothingness and to resign ourselves to believe in it. But still, when he saw that she did not move, Charles threw himself upon her, crying, Farewell! Farewell! Homais and Carnivet dragged him from the room. Restrain yourself. Yes, said he, struggling. I'll be quiet. I'll not do anything, but leave me alone. I want to see her. She is my wife. And he wept. Cry, said the chemist. Let nature take her course. That will solace you. Weaker than a child, Charles let himself be led downstairs into the sitting-room, and Monsieur Homais soon went home. On the place he was accosted by the blind man, who, having dragged himself as far as Yonville in the hope of getting the antiphlogistic pomade, was asking every passer-by where the druggist lived. There, now, as if I hadn't got other fish to fry. Well, so much the worse. You must come later on. And he entered the shop hurriedly. He had to write two letters, to prepare a soothing potion for Bovary, to invent some lie that would conceal the poisoning, and work it up into an article for the finale, without counting the people who were waiting to get the news from him. And when the Yonvillers had all heard his story of the arsenic that she had mistaken for sugar in making a vanilla cream, Homais once more returned to Bovary's. He found him alone, Monsieur Canavet had left, sitting in an armchair near the window staring with an idiotic look at the flags of the floor. "'Now,' said the chemist, "'you ought yourself to fix the hour for the ceremony.' "'Why? What ceremony?' Then, in a stammering, frightened voice, "'Oh, no, no, not that, no. I want to see her here.' 
Ahmet, to keep himself in countenance, took up a water bottle on the whatnot to water the geraniums. Ah, thanks, said Charles, you are good. But he did not finish, choking beneath the crowd of memories that this action of the druggist recalled to him. Then, to distract him, Homme thought fit to talk a little horticulture. Plants wanted humidity. Charles bowed his head in sign of approbation. Besides, the fine days will soon be here again. Ah, said Bovary. The druggist, at his wit's end, began softly to draw aside the small window curtain. Hello, there's Monsieur Tuvache passing. Charles repeated, like a machine, Monsieur Tuvache passing. Homais did not dare to speak to him again about the funeral arrangements. It was the priest who succeeded in reconciling him to them. He shut himself up in his consulting room, took a pen, and after sobbing for some time, wrote, I wish her to be buried in her wedding dress with white shoes and a wreath. Her hair is to be spread out over her shoulders. Three coffins, one of oak, one of mahogany, one of lead. Let no one say anything to me. I shall have strength. Over all there is to be placed a large piece of green velvet. This is my wish. See that it is done. The two men were much surprised at Bovary's romantic ideas. The chemist at once went to him and said, This velvet seems to me a superfetation, besides the expense. What's that to you? cried Charles. Leave me. You did not love her. Go. The priest took him by the arm for a turn in the garden. He discoursed on the vanity of earthly things. God was very great, was very good. One must submit to his decree without a murmur, nay, must even thank him. Charles burst out into blasphemies. I hate your God! The spirit of rebellion is still upon you, sighed the ecclesiastic. Bovary was far away. He was walking with great strides along by the wall, near the espalier, and he ground his teeth. He raised to heaven's looks of malediction, but not so much as a leaf stirred. A fine rain was falling. Charles, whose chest was bare, at last began to shiver. He went in and sat down in the kitchen. At six o'clock a noise like a clatter of old iron was heard on the place. It was the Hirondelle coming in and he remained with his forehead against the window-pane, watching all the passengers get out, one after the other. Felicite put down a mattress for him in the drawing-room. He threw himself upon it and fell asleep. Although a philosopher, Monsieur Homais respected the dead. So, bearing no grudge to poor Charles, he came back again in the evening to sit up with the body, bringing with him three volumes and a pocket-book for taking notes. Monsieur Bernissien was there, and two large candles were burning at the head of the bed that had been taken out of the alcove. The druggist, on whom the silence weighed, was not long before he began formulating some regrets about this unfortunate young woman, and the priest replied that there was nothing to do now but pray for her. Yet, Homme went on, one of two things. Either she died in a state of grace, as the church has it, and then she has no need of our prayers, or else she departed impertinent, that is, I believe, the ecclesiastic expression, and then, Bernissian interrupted him, replying testily that it was none the less necessary to pray. 
But, objected the chemist, since God knows all our needs, what can be the good of prayer? What? cried the ecclesiastic. Prayer? Why, aren't you a Christian? Excuse me, said Homme, I admire Christianity. To begin with, it enfranchised the slaves, introduced into the world a morality that isn't the question. All the texts, oh, oh, as to texts, look at history. It is known that all the texts have been falsified by the Jesuits. Charles came in, and advancing towards the bed, slowly drew the curtains. Emma's head was turned towards her right shoulder. The corner of her mouth, which was open, seemed like a black hole at the lower part of her face. Her two thumbs were bent into the palms of her hands. A kind of white dust besprinkled her lashes, and her eyes were beginning to disappear in that viscous pallor that looks like a thin web, as if spiders had spun it over. The sheet sunk in from her breast to her knees, and then rose at the tips of her toes, and it seemed to Charles that infinite masses, an enormous load, were weighing upon her. The church clock struck two. They could hear the loud murmur of the river flowing in the darkness at the foot of the terrace. Monsieur Bernicien from time to time blew his nose noisily, and Homais' pen was scratching over the paper. "'Come, my good friend,' he said, "'withdraw. This spectacle is tearing you to pieces.' Charles, once gone, the chemist and the curé recommenced their discussions. "'Read Voltaire,' said the one. "'Read Dolbach. Read the Encyclopedia.' "'Read the letters of some Portuguese Jews,' said the other. "'Read the meaning of Christianity by Nicholas, formerly a magistrate.' They grew warm. They grew red. They both talked at once without listening to each other. Bonicien was scandalised at such audacity. Homme marvelled at such stupidity, and they were on the point of insulting one another when Charles suddenly reappeared. A fascination drew him. He was continually coming upstairs. He stood opposite her, the better to see her, and he lost himself in a contemplation so deep that it was no longer painful. He recalled stories of catalepsy, the marvels of magnetism, and he said to himself that by willing it with all his force he might perhaps succeed in reviving her. Once he even bent towards her and cried in a low voice, Emma, Emma. His strong breathing made the flames of the candles tremble against the wall. At daybreak Madame Bovary Senior arrived. Charles, as he embraced her, burst into another flood of tears. She tried, as the chemist had done, to make some remarks to him on the expenses of the funeral. He became so angry that she was silent, and he even commissioned her to go to town at once and buy what was necessary. Charles remained alone the whole afternoon. They had taken Bertha to Madame Homais. Felicité was in the room upstairs with Madame Le Francois. In the evening he had some visitors. He rose, pressed their hands, unable to speak. Then they sat down near one another and formed a large semicircle in front of the fire. With lowered faces and swinging one leg crossed over the other knee, they uttered deep sighs at intervals. Each one was inordinately bored, and yet none would be the first to go. Homme, when he returned at nine o'clock, for the last two days only Homme seemed to have been on the place, was laden with a stock of camphor, of benzene and aromatic herbs. 
He also carried a large jar full of chlorine water to keep off all miasmata. Just then the servant, Madame Lefrancois and Madame Bovary Senior were busy about Emma, finishing dressing her, and they were drawing down the long stiff veil that covered her to her satin shoes. Felicité was sobbing, Ah, my poor mistress, my poor mistress. Look at her, said the landlady, sighing, how pretty she still is. Now couldn't you swear she was going to get up in a minute? Then they bent over her to put on her wreath. They had to raise the head a little, and a rush of black liquid issued as if she were vomiting from her mouth. Oh, goodness, the dress, take care, cried Madame Lefrancois. Now, just come and help, she said to the chemist. Perhaps you're afraid? I'm afraid, replied he, shrugging his shoulders. I dare say, I've seen all sorts of things at the hospital when I was studying pharmacy. We used to make punch in the dissecting room. Nothingness does not terrify a philosopher. And, as I often say, I even intend to leave my body to the hospitals in order later on to serve science. The curé, on his arrival, inquired how Monsieur Bovary was, and on the reply of the druggist went on, The blow, you see, is still too recent. Then Homme congratulated him on not being exposed like other people to the loss of a beloved companion, whence there followed a discussion on the celibacy of priests. For, said the chemist, it is unnatural that a man should do without a woman. There have been crimes. But good heavens, cried the ecclesiastic, how do you expect an individual who is married to keep the secrets of the confessional, for example? Homme fell foul of the confessional. Bonician defended it. He enlarged on the acts of restitution that it brought about. He cited various anecdotes about thieves who had suddenly become honest. Military men on approaching the tribunal of penitence had felt the scales fall from their eyes. At Fieburg there was a minister. His companion was asleep, and he felt somewhat stifled by the over-heavy atmosphere of the room. He opened the window. This awoke the chemist. Come, take a pinch of snuff, he said to him. Take it, it'll relieve you. A continual barking was heard in the distance. Do you hear that dog howling, said the chemist. They smell the dead, replied the priest. It's like bees, they leave their hives on the decease of any person. Homais made no remark upon these prejudices, for he had again dropped to sleep. Monsieur Bonicien, stronger than he, went on moving his lips gently for some time. Then insensibly his chin sank down. He let fall his big black boot and began to snore. They sat opposite one another, with protruding stomachs, puffed-up faces and frowning looks, after so much disagreement, uniting at last in the same human weakness. And they moved no more than the corpse by their side that seemed to be sleeping. Charles coming in did not wake them. It was the last time he came to bid her farewell. The aromatic herbs were still smoking, and spirals of bluish vapour blended at the window sash with the fog that was coming in. There were few stars, and the night was warm. The wax of the candles fell in great drops upon the sheets of the bed. Charles watched them burn, tiring his eyes against the glare of their yellow flame. The watering on the satin gown shimmered white as moonlight. Emma was lost beneath it, and it seemed to him that, spreading beyond her own self, she blended confusedly with everything around her, the silence, the night, 
the passing wind, the damp odours rising from the ground. Then suddenly he saw her in the garden at Tostes, on a bench against the thorn hedge, or else at Rouen in the streets, on the threshold of their house, in the yard at Berteau. He again heard the laughter of the happy boys beneath the apple trees. The room was filled with the perfume of her hair, and her dress rustled in his arms with a noise like electricity. The dress was still the same. For a long while he thus recalled all his lost joys, her attitudes, her movements, the sound of her voice. Upon one fit of despair followed another, and even others, inexhaustible as the waves of an overflowing sea. A terrible curiosity seized him. Slowly, with the tips of his fingers palpitating, he lifted her veil, but he uttered a cry of horror that awoke the other two. They dragged him down into the sitting-room. Then Felicite came up to say that he wanted some of her hair. "'Cut some off,' replied the druggist. And as she did not dare to, he himself stepped forward, scissors in hand. He trembled so that he pierced the skin of the temple in several places. At last, stiffening himself against emotion, Homais gave two or three great cuts at random that left white patches amongst that beautiful black hair. The chemist and the curé plunged anew into their occupations, not without sleeping from time to time, of which they accused each other reciprocally at each fresh awakening. The Monsieur Bernicien sprinkled the room with holy water, and Homais threw a little chlorine water on the floor. Felicité had taken care to put on the chest of drawers for each of them a bottle of brandy, some cheese, and a large roll, and the druggist, who could not hold out any longer, about four in the morning, sighed, my word, I should like to take some sustenance. The priest did not need any persuading. He went out to go and say mass, came back, and then they ate and hobnobbed, giggling a little without knowing why, stimulated by that vague gaiety that comes upon us after times of sadness. And at the last glass the priest said to the druggist as he clapped him on the shoulder, We shall end by understanding one another. In the passage downstairs they met the undertaker's men who were coming in. Then Charles for two hours had to suffer the torture of hearing the hammer resound against the wood. Next day they lowered her into her oak coffin that was fitted into the other two, but as the beer was too large they had to fill up the gaps with the wool of a mattress. At last, when the three lids had been planed down, nailed, soldered, it was placed outside in front of the door. The house was thrown open, and the people of Yonville began to flock round. Old Rouault arrived and fainted on the place when he saw the black cloth. End of Part 3 Chapter 9《Part 3 Chapter 10 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 3. Chapter 10. He had only received the chemist's letter thirty-six hours after the event, and, from consideration of his feelings, Homais had so worded it that it was impossible to make out what it was all about. First the old fellow had fallen as if struck by apoplexy. Next he understood that she was not dead, but she might be. 
At last he had put on his blouse, taken his hat, fastened his spurs to his boots, and set out at full speed, and the whole of the way old Rouault, panting, was torn by anguish. Once, even, he was obliged to dismount. He was dizzy. He heard voices going round about him. He felt himself going mad. Day broke. He saw three black hens asleep in a tree. He shuddered, horrified at this omen. Then he promised the Holy Virgin three chasubles for the church, and that he would go barefooted from the cemetery at Berteau to the chapel at Vassonville. He entered Marom, shouting for the people of the inn, burst open the door with a thrust of his shoulder, made for a sack of oats, emptied a bottle of sweet cider into the manger, and again mounted his nag, whose feet struck fire as it dashed along. He said to himself that no doubt they would save her, the doctors would discover some remedy, surely. He remembered all the miraculous cures he had been told about. Then she appeared to him, dead. She was there, before his eyes, lying on her back in the middle of the road. He reined up, and the hallucination disappeared. At Cancampois, to give himself heart, he drank three cups of coffee, one after the other. He fancied they had made a mistake in the name in writing. He looked for the letter in his pocket, felt it there, but did not dare to open it. At last he began to think it was all a joke, some unspite, the jest of some wag. And besides, if she were dead, one would have known it. But no, there was nothing extraordinary about the country. The sky was blue, the trees swayed, a flock of sheep passed. He saw the village. He was seen coming, bending forward upon his horse, belabouring it with great blows, the girths dripping with blood. When he had recovered consciousness, he fell weeping into Bovary's arms. My girl, Emma, my child, tell me. The other replied, sobbing, I don't know, I don't know, it's a curse. The druggist separated them. These horrible details are useless. I will tell this gentleman all about it. Here are the people coming. Dignity, come now, philosophy. The poor fellow tried to show himself brave and repeated several times, Yes, courage. Oh, cried the old man, so I will have by God. I'll go along to the end. The bell began tolling. All was ready. They had to start. And, seated in a stall of the choir, side by side, they saw pass and repass in front of them continually the three chanting choristers. The serpent player was blowing with all his might. Monsieur Bernicien, in full vestments, was singing in a shrill voice. He bowed before the tabernacle, raising his hand, stretched out his arms. Lestiboudard went about the church with his whalebone stick. The beer stood near the lectern, between four rows of candles. Charles felt inclined to get up and put them out. Yet he tried to stir himself into a feeling of devotion, to throw himself into the hope of a future life in which he should see her again. He imagined to himself she had gone on a long journey, far away, for a long time. But when he thought of her lying there, and that all was over, that they would lay her in the earth, he was seized with a fierce, gloomy, despairful rage. At times he thought he felt nothing more, and he enjoyed this lull in his pain, whilst at the same time he reproached himself for being a wretch. The sharp noise of an iron ferruled stick was heard on the stones, striking them at irregular intervals. It came from the end of the church, and stopped short at the lower aisles. A man in a coarse brown jacket knelt down painfully. 
It was Hippolyte, the stable boy at the lion door. He had put on his new leg. One of the choristers went round the nave making a collection, and the coppers chinked one after the other on the silver plate. "'Oh, make haste! I am in pain!' cried Bovary, angrily throwing him a five-franc piece. The churchman thanked him with a deep bow. They sang, they knelt, they stood up. It was endless. He remembered that once, in the early times, they had been to Mass together, and they had sat down on the other side, on the right, by the wall. The bell began again. There was a great moving of chairs. The bearers slipped their three staves under the coffin, and everyone left the church. Then Justin appeared at the door of the shop. He suddenly went in again, pale, staggering. People were at the windows to see the procession pass. Charles, at the head, walked erect. He affected a brave air, and saluted with a nod those who, coming out from the lanes or from their doors, stood amidst the crowd. The six men, three on either side, walked slowly, panting a little. The priests, the choristers, and the two choir-boys recited the De Profundis, and their voices echoed over the fields, rising and falling with their undulations. Sometimes they disappeared in the windings of the path, but the great silver cross rose always before the trees. The women followed in black cloaks with turned-down hoods. Each of them carried in her hands a large lighted candle, and Charles felt himself growing weaker at this continual repetition of prayers and tortures beneath this oppressive odour of wax and of cassocks. A fresh breeze was blowing, the rye and kotza were sprouting, little dewdrops trembled at the roadsides and on the hawthorn hedges. All sorts of joyous sounds filled the air, the jolting of a cart rolling afar off in the ruts, the crowing of a cock repeated again and again, or the gambling of a foal running away under the apple trees. The pure sky was fretted with rosy clouds, a bluish haze rested upon the cots covered with iris. Charles, as he passed, recognised each courtyard. He remembered mornings like this when, after visiting some patient, he came out from one and returned to her. The black cloth, bestrewn with white beads, blew up from time to time, laying bare the coffin. The tired bearers walked more slowly, and it advanced with constant jerks, like a boat that pitches with every wave. They reached the cemetery. The men went right down to a place in the grass where a grave was dug. They ranged themselves all round, and while the priest spoke, the red soil thrown up at the sides kept noiselessly slipping down at the corners. Then, when the four ropes were arranged, the coffin was placed upon them. He watched it descend. It seemed descending forever. At last a thud was heard. The ropes creaked as they were drawn up. Then Bonacien took the spade handed to him by Lestie Boudoir. With his left hand all the time sprinkling water, with the right he vigorously threw in a large spadeful, and the wood of the coffin, struck by the pebbles, gave forth that dread sound that seems to us the reverberation of eternity. The ecclesiastic passed the holy water sprinkler to his neighbour. This was Homais. He swung it gravely, then handed it to Charles, who sank to his knees in the earth and threw in handfuls of it, crying, Adieu! He sent her kisses. He dragged himself towards the grave to engulf himself with her. They led him away, and he soon grew calmer, 
feeling perhaps like the others a vague satisfaction that it was all over. Old Rouault on his way back began quietly smoking a pipe, which Homais in his innermost conscience thought not quite the thing. He also noticed that Monsieur Binet had not been present, and that Tuvache had made off after Mass, and that Théodore, the notary's servant, wore a blue coat, as if one could not have got a black coat, since that is the custom, by Jove. And to share his observations with others, he went from group to group. They were deploring Emma's death, especially Leroux, who had not failed to come to the funeral. Poor little woman, what a trouble for her husband! The druggist continued, Do you know that but for me he would have committed some fatal attempt upon himself? Such a good woman, to think that I saw her only last Saturday in my shop. I haven't had leisure, said Homais, to prepare a few words that I would have cast upon her tomb. Charles, on getting home, undressed, and old Rouault put on his blue blouse. It was a new one, and as he had often during the journey wiped his eyes on the sleeves, the dye had stained his face, and the traces of tears made lines in the layer of dust that covered it. Madame Bovary Senior was with them. All three were silent. At last the old fellow sighed. Do you remember, my friend, that I went to Tosters once, when you had just lost your first deceased? I consoled you at the time. I thought of something to say then, but now. Then, with a loud groan that shook his whole chest, Ah, this is the end for me, do you see? I saw my wife go, then my son, and now today it's my daughter. He wanted to go back at once to Berteau, saying that he could not sleep in this house. He even refused to see his granddaughter. No, no, it would grieve me too much. Only you'll kiss her many times for me. Goodbye, you're a good fellow. And then I shall never forget that, he said, slapping his thigh. Never fear, you shall always have your turkey. But when he reached the top of the hill, he turned back, as he had turned once before on the road of St. Victor, when he had parted from her. The windows of the village were all on fire beneath the slanting rays of the sun sinking behind the field. He put his hand over his eyes, and saw in the horizon an enclosure of walls, where trees here and there formed black clusters between white stones. Then he went on his way at a gentle trot, for his nag had gone lame. Despite their fatigue, Charles and his mother stayed very long that evening talking together. They spoke of the days of the past and of the future. She would come to live at Yonville. She would keep house for him. They would never part again. She was ingenious and caressing, rejoicing in her heart at gaining once more an affection that had wandered from her for so many years. Midnight struck. The village, as usual, was silent, and Charles, awake, thought always of her. Rodolphe, who, to distract himself, had been rambling about the wood all day, was sleeping quietly in his chateau, and Léon, down yonder, always slept. There was another who, at that hour, was not asleep. On the grave between the pine trees, a child was on his knees weeping, and his heart, rent by sobs, was beating in the shadow beneath the load of an immense regret, sweeter than the moon and fathomless as the night. The gate suddenly grated. It was Lestie Boudoir. He came to fetch his spade that he had forgotten. He recognised Justin climbing over the wall, and at last knew who was the culprit who stole his potatoes.
End of part 3, chapter 10. Part 3, chapter 11 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Averling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 3, chapter 11. The next day Charles had the child brought back. She asked for her mamma. They told her she was away, that she would bring her back some playthings. Berta spoke of her again several times, then at last thought no more of her. The child's gaiety broke Bovary's heart, and he had to bear besides the intolerable consolations of the chemist. Money troubles soon began again, Monsieur Lerreux urging on anew his friend Vancar, and Charles pledged himself for exorbitant sums, for he would never consent to let the smallest of the things that had belonged to her be sold. His mother was exasperated with him. He grew even more angry than she did. He had altogether changed. She left the house. Then everyone began taking advantage of him. Mademoiselle l'Empereur presented a bill for six months' teaching, although Emma had never taken a lesson, despite the receipted bill she had shown Bovary. It was an arrangement between the two women. The man at the circulating library demanded three years' subscriptions. Mayor Rollet claimed the postage due for some twenty letters and when Charles asked for an explanation, she had the delicacy to reply, Oh, I don't know, it was for her business affairs. With every debt he paid, Charles thought he had come to the end of them. But others followed ceaselessly. He sent in accounts for professional attendance. He was shown the letters his wife had written. Then he had to apologise. Felicite now wore Madame Bovary's gowns. Not all, for he had kept some of them and he went to look at them in her dressing-room, locking himself up there. She was about her height, and often Charles, seeing her from behind, was seized with an illusion, and cried out, Oh, stay, stay! But at Whitsuntide she ran away from Yonville, carried off by Théodore, stealing all that was left of the wardrobe. It was about this time that the widow Dupuis had the honour to inform him of the marriage of Monsieur Léon Dupuis, her son, notary at Iveto, to Mademoiselle Léosardie Le Boeuf of Montville. Charles, among the other congratulations he sent him, wrote this sentence. How glad my poor wife would have been! One day, when wandering aimlessly about the house, he had gone up to the attic. He felt a pellet to find paper under his slippers. He opened it and read, Courage, Emma, courage, I would not bring misery into your life. It was Rodolphe's letter, fallen to the ground between the boxes where it had remained, and that the wind from the dormer window had just blown towards the door. And Charles stood, motionless and staring, in the very same place where, long ago, Emma, in despair, and paler even than he, had thought of dying. At last he discovered a small R at the bottom of the second page. What did this mean? He remembered Rodolphe's attentions, his sudden disappearance, his constrained air when they had met two or three times since. But the respectful tone of the letter deceived him. Perhaps they loved one another platonically, he said to himself. Besides, Charles was not of those who go to the bottom of things. He shrank from the proofs, and his vague jealousy was lost in the immensity of his woe. 
Everyone, he thought, must have adored her. All men, assuredly, must have coveted her. She seemed but the more beautiful to him for this. He was seized with a lasting, furious desire for her that inflamed his despair and that was boundless because it was now unrealisable. To please her as if she was still living, he adopted her predilections, her ideas. He bought patent leather boots and took to wearing white cravats. He put cosmetics on his moustache and, like her, signed notes of hand. She corrupted him from beyond the grave. He was obliged to sell his silver piece by piece. Next he sold the drawing-room furniture. All the rooms were stripped, but the bedroom, her own room, remained as before. After his dinner, Charles went up there. He pushed the round table in front of the fire and drew up her armchair. He sat down opposite it. A candle burnt in one of the gilt candlesticks. Berta, by his side, was painting prints. He suffered, poor man, at seeing her so badly dressed with laceless boots and the armholes of her pinafore torn down to the hips, for the charwoman took no care of her. But she was so sweet, so pretty, and her little head bent forward so gracefully, letting the dear fair hair fall over her rosy cheeks, that an infinite joy came upon him, a happiness mingled with bitterness, like those ill-made wines that taste of resin. He mended her toys made her puppets from cardboard, or sewed up half-torn dolls. Then, if his eyes fell upon the work-box, a ribbon lying about, or even a pin left in a crack of the table, he began to dream and looked so sad that she became as sad as he. No one now came to see them, for Justin had run away to Rouen, where he was a grocer's assistant, and the druggist's children saw less and less of the child, Monsieur Hamet not caring seeing the difference of their social position, to continue the intimacy. The blind man, whom he had not been able to cure with the pomade, had gone back to the hill of Bois-Guillaume, where he told the travellers of the vain attempt of the druggist to such an extent that Homais, when he went to town, hid himself behind the curtains of the Hurondel to avoid meeting him. He detested him, and wishing in the interest of his own reputation to get rid of him at all costs, he directed against him a secret battery that betrayed the depth of his intellect and the baseness of his vanity. Thus, for six consecutive months, one could read in the Fanal de Rouen editorials such as these, All who bend their steps towards the fertile plains of Picardy have no doubt remarked by the Bois-Guillaume Hill a wretch suffering from a horrible facial wound. He importunes, persecutes one, and levies a regular tax on all travellers. Are we still living in the monstrous times of the Middle Ages when vagabonds were permitted to display in our public places leprosy and scrofulas they had brought back from the Crusades? Or, in spite of the laws against vagabondage, the approaches to our great town continue to be infected by bands of beggars. Some are seen going about alone, and these are not perhaps the least dangerous. What are our ediles about? Then Homais invented anecdotes. Yesterday by the Bois-Guillaume Hill, a skittish horse. And then followed the story of an accident caused by the presence of the blind man. He managed so well that the fellow was locked up. But he was released. He began again, and Homais began again. It was a struggle. Homais won it, for his foe was condemned to lifelong confinement in an asylum. 
This success emboldened him, and henceforth there was no longer a dog run over, a barn burnt down, a woman beaten in the parish, of which he did not immediately inform the public, guided always by the love of progress and the hate of priests. He instituted comparisons between the elementary and clerical schools to the detriment of the latter. Called to mind the massacre of St. Bartholomew, apropos of a grant of 100 francs to the church, and denounced abuses, aired new views. That was his phrase. Homais was digging and delving. He was becoming dangerous. However, he was stifling in the narrow limits of journalism, and soon a book, a work, was necessary to him. Then he composed General Statistics of the Canon of Yonville, followed by Climatological Remarks. The statistics drove him to philosophy. He busied himself with great questions. The social problem, moralisation of the poorer classes, pisciculture, caoutchouc, railways, etc. He even began to blush at being a bourgeois. He affected the artistic style. He smoked. He bought two chic pompadour statuettes to adorn his drawing-room. He by no means gave up his shop. On the contrary, he kept well abreast of new discoveries. He followed the great movement of chocolates. He was the first to introduce cocoa and revelenta into the Seine Inferieur. He was enthusiastic about the hydroelectric pulvermarché chains. He wore one himself, and when at night he took off his flannel vest, Madame Homais stood quite dazzled before the golden spirals beneath which he was hidden, and felt her ardour redouble for this man more bandaged than a Scythian and splendid as one of the Magi. He had fine ideas about Emma's tomb. First he proposed a broken column with some drapery, next a pyramid, then a temple of Vesta, a sort of rotunda, or else a mass of ruins. And in all his plans, Homais always stuck to the weeping willow, which he looked upon as the indispensable symbol of sorrow. Charles and he made a journey to Rouen together to look at some tombs at a funeral furnishers, accompanied by an artist, one Vaufrilard, a friend of Bridos, who made puns all the time. At last, after having examined some hundred designs, having ordered an estimate and made another journey to Rouen, Charles decided in favour of a mausoleum, which on the two principal sides was to have a spirit bearing an extinguished torch. As to the inscription, Homais could think of nothing so fine as Star Viator, and he got no further. He racked his brain. He constantly repeated Star Viator. At last he hit upon Amabilen Conjugem Calcus, which was adopted. A strange thing was that Bovary, while continually thinking of Emma, was forgetting her. He grew desperate as he felt this image fading from his memory, in spite of all efforts to retain it. Yet every night he dreamt of her. It was always the same dream. He drew near her, and when he was about to clasp her, she fell into decay in his wrists. For a week he was seen going to church in the evening. Monsieur Bourissien even paid him two or three visits, then gave him up. Moreover, the old fellow was growing intolerant, fanatic, said Homais. He thundered against the spirit of the age, and never failed every other week in his sermon to recount the death agony of Voltaire, who died devouring his excrements, as everyone knows. In spite of the economy with which Bovary lived, he was far from being able to pay off his old debts. Lerreux refused to renew any more bills. 
a distraint became imminent. Then he appealed to his mother, who consented to let him take a mortgage on her property, but with a great many recriminations against Emma. And in return for her sacrifice, she asked for a shawl that had escaped the depredations of Felicite. Charles refused to give it her. They quarrelled. She made the first overtures of reconciliation by offering to have the little girl, who could help her in the house, to live with her. Charles consented to this, but when the time for parting came, all his courage failed him. Then there was a final, complete rupture. As his affections vanished, he clung more closely to the love of his child. She made him anxious, however, for she coughed sometimes and had red spots on her cheeks. Opposite his house, flourishing and merry, was the family of the chemist with whom everything was prospering. Napoleon helped him in the laboratory. Attali embroidered him a skull cap. Irma cut out rounds of paper to cover the preserves. And Franklin recited Pythagoras's table in a breath. He was the happiest of fathers, the most fortunate of men. Not so. A secret ambition devoured him. Homais hankered after the cross of the Legion of Honour. He had plenty of claims to it. First, having at the time of the cholera distinguished myself by a boundless devotion. Second, by having published, at my expense, various works of public utility, such as, and he recalled his pamphlet entitled Cider, Its Manufacture and Effects, besides observation of the lanigerous plant louse sent to the Academy, his volume of statistics, and down to his pharmaceutical thesis, without counting that I am a member of several learned societies, he was a member of a single one. In short, he cried, making a pirouette, if it were only for distinguishing myself at fires. Then Homais inclined towards the government. He secretly did the prefect great service during the elections. He sold himself, in a word, prostituted himself. He even addressed a petition to the sovereign in which he implored him to do him justice. He called him our good king and compared him to Henry the Fourth. And every morning the druggist rushed for the paper to see if his nomination were in it. It was never there. At last, unable to bear it any longer, he had a grass plot in his garden designed to represent the star of the cross of honour with two little strips of grass running from the top to imitate the ribbon. He walked round it with folded arms, meditating on the folly of the government and the ingratitude of men. From respect, or from a sort of sensuality that made him carry on his investigations slowly, Charles had not yet opened the secret drawer of a rosewood desk which Emma had generally used. One day, however, he sat down before it, turned the key, and pressed the spring. All Léon's letters were there. There could be no doubt this time. He devoured them to the very last ransacked every corner, all the furniture, all the drawers, behind the wall, sobbing, crying aloud, distraught, mad. He found a box and broke it open with a kick. Rodolphe's portrait flew full in his face in the midst of the overturned love letters. People wondered at his despondency. He never went out, saw no one, refused even to visit his patients. Then they said he shut himself up to drink. Sometimes, however, some curious person climbed onto the garden hedge and saw with amazement this long-bearded, shabbily-clothed, wild man who wept aloud as he walked up and down. In the evening in summer he took his little girl with him and led her to the cemetery. 
They came back at nightfall, when the only light left in the place was that in Binet's window. The voluptuousness of his grief was, however, incomplete, for he had no one near him to share it, and he paid visits to Madame Le Francois to be able to speak of her. But the landlady only listened with half an ear, having troubles like himself. For Leroux had at last established the favorites du commerce, and Hiver, who enjoyed a great reputation for doing errands, insisted on a rise of wages, and was threatening to go over to the opposition shop. One day, when he had gone to the market at Aigoy to sell his horse, his last resource, he met Rodolphe. They both turned pale when they caught sight of one another. Rodolphe, who had only sent his card, first stammered some apologies, then grew bolder, and even pushed his assurance, it was in the month of August and very hot, to the length of inviting him to have a bottle of beer at the public house. Leaning on the table opposite him, he chewed his cigar as he talked, and Charles was lost in reverie at this face that she had loved. He seemed to see again something of her in it. It was a marvel to him. He would have liked to have been this man. The other went on talking agriculture, cattle, pasturage, filling out with banal phrases all the gaps where an illusion might slip in. Charles was not listening to him. Rodolphe noticed it, and he followed the succession of memories that crossed his face. This gradually grew redder. The nostrils throbbed fast. The lips quivered. There was at last a moment when Charles, full of a sombre fury, fixed his eyes on Rodolphe, who, in something of fear, stopped talking. But soon the same look of weary lassitude came back to his face. "'I don't blame you,' he said. Rodolphe was dumb. And Charles, his head in his hands, went on in a broken voice and with a resigned accent of infinite sorrow. No, I don't blame you now. He even made a fine phrase, the only one he ever made. It is the fault of fatality. Rodolphe, who had managed the fatality, thought the remark very offhand from a man in his position, comic even, and a little mean. The next day Charles went to sit down on the seat in the arbour. Rays of light were straying through the trellis. The vine leaves threw their shadows on the sand. The jasmines perfumed the air. The heavens were blue. Spanish flies buzzed round the lilies in bloom. And Charles was suffocating like a youth beneath the vague love influences that filled his aching heart. At seven o'clock little Berta, who had not seen him all the afternoon, went to fetch him to dinner. His head was thrown back against the wall, his eyes closed, his mouth open, and in his hand was a long tress of black hair. "'Come along, Papa,' she said. And thinking he wanted to play, she pushed him gently. He fell to the ground. He was dead. Thirty-six hours after, at the druggist's request, Monsieur Canavet came thither. He made a post-mortem and found nothing. When everything had been sold, twelve francs seventy-five centimes remained that served to pay for Mademoiselle Bovary's going to her grandmother. The good woman died the same year. Old Rouault was paralysed, and it was an aunt who took charge of her. She is poor and sends her to a cotton factory to earn a living. Since Bovary's death, three doctors have followed one another at Yonville without any success, so severely did Homais attack them. 
He has an enormous practice. The authorities treat him with consideration and public opinion protects him. He has just received the cross of the Legion of Honour. End of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Averling